Hello, and welcome to another UK Column interview. And you know, today, my guest really needs no introduction. However, he deserves one. If ever a guest deserved an introduction, it is my today's guest, who's not only a true warrior and a true expert and a medical doctor, a general practitioner, but he's also our friend here at UK Column. And you know, during the lockup, as I call it, I used to go down to Truro and um, I used to see lots of people in, when they were gathering, I don't like to call them protests, they weren't protests, they were gatherings of like-minded people. And I was asked to stand on a podium and speak to people and it's quite daunting when you're not used to it. And when I was at one of the gatherings, I noticed a very shy, nervous, quiet young man in the audience. But I also noticed that he had an NHS lanyard around his neck. And it wasn't too long before I was introduced to Dr. David Cartland here in Cornwall, where I live. And Dr. David Cartland was willing to stand up. This was a couple of years ago. And today we're going to be joined by Dr. Cartland to give us a, an update on what's happened because at UK Column, he spoke out for the first time against what he was seeing that was going on in the NHS. And I've written a couple of things down here because in the last two years, Dr. David Cartland has, he's been, there's been a witch hunt out for him. He's been ridiculed, he's been trolled, he's been disrespected, he's had accusations thrown at him, he's been ignored, he's been punished and chastised for speaking the truth and sticking by his Hippocratic oath of do no harm. To us at UK Column and to our audience, I know for all of you, you'll be saying, but he's brave and he is. He's brave, he's honest, he's courageous, he's truly altruistic, he's caring, he's determined, he's fearless, and he's also a man of God. And he's also a family man. And you know, Dr. David Cartland never expected to find himself in the situation that he's in today. But three years ago, COVID came into all of our lives and COVID has changed most of our lives entirely. And for him, it's changed completely. So today, welcome back, Dr. David Cartland. And as a nurse, the first question I want to ask you is, how are you? Thanks for the introduction, Deb. It's, uh, that was a really, uh, really emotional to hear that back, actually. And I feel a bit sorry for that, David Cartland, you were talking about. But, but jokes aside, I've probably aged a little bit since we, uh, since we last met on the column. Um, these wrinkles are induced by the GMC and uh, others like them. And, you know, as you mentioned in the introduction there, that I am a shy person. Um, I always ask people what they think I was getting or gaining from speaking out when I did. And it was simply what you just outlined, really. I'm a family man. I care about the next generation. Um, I'm a doctor who took an Hippocratic Oath and also, you know, as part of that, you know, took his vows of, you know, patient safety, following ethical codes of conduct. You know, and these are enshrined in the GMC codes of practice as well, you know, and, and upholding patient safety at all times. So, you know, it's, it's good that you mentioned that. Because I am a shy guy. I do these interviews on Zoom because I don't like standing with a microphone and a megaphone um, at these gatherings. And 
you know, I've, I've done my bit and hopefully motivated other people to speak out. But yeah, going back to how you said, asked me how am I doing, it's been stressful. It's not been a joy. All those things that you mentioned have happened. I've been blacklisted. I've been ridiculed, called names, you know, made to question my sanity by not just individuals and internet trolls, but, you know, the, the organisations that I work for, the GMC, the LMC, you know, my own GP, you know, making me feel as if I've kind of lost the plot. And all I've ever really done, in honesty, is present um, things that I've seen in my own clinical practice um, and, you know, the, I've, I've not made this up for fun. I've, I've reported what I've seen, you know, when I made that first phone call to you and Brian back in the day, it was, this is what I'm seeing. I'm really concerned that there are some safety signals here. I need to talk about it. Um, and and, and Selavi, that happened. And, and, and so the, the interviews came from there. I've written articles and, and none of it's based on grifting or all the rest of it that I get called it's all been with a pure heart and it's all been with an intention of you know following those things through my my Hippocratic Oath patient safety and ethics and you know to this day I reflect that you know what was my crime why have I been blacklisted you know surgeries will literally have put the phone down on agencies or you know I've, I've applied to pretty much every surgery in Cornwall in the last few months and you know I've had three replies saying we don't effectively employ anti-vaxxers I've not had a conversation with a doctor um, with anyone in the hierarchy. I, mean, I remember presenting after one of the complaints to the GMC. Um, I had to write a reflective piece, which has just been published on the internet. Um, and with that, you know, I, I got to present to the GMC. And I just remember at the very end of that conversation, I asked them what their thoughts were on the content of what I presented to them and in the reflective piece. And they just kind of were apathetic to it. They just said, "Don't." it's not our job to really critique the, the data you presented. It's, you know, they, they said three things. They said, we're here to assess your well-being your mental health number one number two we're here to assess your uh, fitness to practice and then the final thing was we're here to assess your fitness for purpose which i've never really got my head around why they dropped that last point in but um we can we can but speculate but yeah i'm, I'm doing okay you know I'm, I've, I've 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 set up away from the nhs now um i have to do the odd shift here and there so i keep contact with my colleagues um i often will see vaccine injured patients so i'll often see you know, clinics where they're jabbing five to seven-year-olds. And I just can't stay quiet if they, you know, that that's not what I signed up for as I became a doctor. So we'll have on conversations with doctors, nurses, the people vaccinating them. You know, one by one, there are conversion stories. There are taps on the shoulder saying, you're absolutely right. I've seen some of your interviews. You know, a practice manager locally just said to me, you've got balls of steel were exact words. And she sort of checked that no one was listening and said, oh, Dave, you know, um, well done. I've seen some of your interviews. Your CV came in last week and it's caused quite, quite a stir amongst the partners. So I inquired as to why and they said, um, well, it's because you're an anti-vaxxer. I keep getting called this anti-vaxxer when I've taken every occupational vaccine that was expected of me. To become a doctor, you have to go through a whole rigorous health um, status check and, and take all sorts of vaccines. And I've had two of these vaccines. I get called a COVID denier. And, you know, you know, I hear about people who've had this kind of flu-like illness at the beginning, you know, and, and so I'm not a COVID denier either. I'm a conspiracy theorist when all I present is data and facts and government uh, information that's publicly available. So it's, no one gets back to me, though, Debbie, that's the issue. No one ever has had a conversation with me, and that hurts that I've managed to get myself blacklisted for doing the right thing. And just remember this, we're, we're actually protected as GPs by our, you know, I've, I was working at a hospital recently, um, and the first presentation at the at the um, induction was from the whistleblowing guardian uh, or freedom to speak up guardian, and they're promoting this no blame culture, this learning uh, process that is whistleblowing until you whistleblow, 
and then when you whistleblow, you pretty much commit career suicide. And we've seen that with other doctors in the in the years gone by. Um, I won't name them because I've not asked their permission to be named, but you know the NHS actually hates a whistleblower because it shines a light on some of the things that happen behind closed doors and in the hospitals up and down the land. So, bit of a long-winded answer, but yeah, I'm doing okay, ticking over. And you know, I have to just remind people here that you know you have no, you have nothing to gain by standing up for this. You are a young doctor with a young family and a wife to support. You've got bills to pay just the same as everyone else. And you had a career. I mean, and and let's not forget, you know, I I just want people to remember that you are a homegrown UK trained. You are a consultant grade as a general practitioner. You are a consultant grade. Just remind us, David, of all of your experience, because it's... (laughs) People think, you know, you just one minute you're a a medical student and the next minute you're a GP. That's not the case, is it? Tell us your journey and your experience that the NHS seem to be able to do without when we're living in an age of NHS strikes, more vacancies than I care to even think about, and yet you're struggling to get work. Tell us your experience and your journey from when you entered medical school yeah, I'll kind of go back to front on that then. So, I mean, as you mentioned, you live in Cornwall the same as I do down this way. We're quite an underdoctored area. So, you know, I get messages all the time saying, can you work for us? Well, agencies not knowing who I am. Um, and I had a, a, an agency off the phone literally put down on them last week. Um, and the surgery decided to, rather than have me, Dave Cartland, because I wasn't a good fit at the surgery, without a conversation, um, they went without a doctor that day. So, so much for patient safety but going back to your question you know I was at medical school I went a slightly long-winded way around becoming a doctor Um, never always wanted to be one to be honest I kind of just kept going through my GCSEs and A-levels and doing quite well at the science subjects and then you know I actually did the first biomedical science degree because I thought it sounded good you know it just sounded quite intelligent and quite cool I could stay at home again big big part of my life is family um and essentially that was it i went off to med school to biomedical sciences um in the last year you could focus on um an area of your choice really whether it's cardiovascular medicine immunology virology etc and that was what i looked into i like the microbiology and immunological part of the human body and so focused on that um and quite interestingly i got first class degree first class honors and finished quite high up the rankings at birmingham medical school and then wanted to get into medicine. Um, one of the, there was a new course where you could do sort of graduate entry, um, and it was a really interesting way of learning how to to learn medicine, which wasn't as curriculum guideline prescriptive learning based. It was very much around teaching each other, critiquing. You know, we'd stand there and lecture each other on the anatomy of X, Y, and Z. Uh, but I couldn't get into that straight away because the system said, even though I had a first class honours degree in biomedical science like I say with the specialist areas that I focused on uh, they told me to go back to school to do a chemistry A level because that's what you needed to go back to to get into medicine that's that's just a great example of how um, the whole system is kind of sending somebody who's got a first class honours degree back to school to get a chemistry A level uh, and so that lasted about a week um, putting my hand up in class at the age of whatever I was 19 I'd done an undergraduate degree and lived the student life for three and a half years um, eventually got into the graduate course at, at Birmingham um, the four-year graduate entry program um, and that was good yeah finished did quite well in the exams there um, got through that and then you do your foundation year program so I, I did my foundation years in, a, in my hometown because that's the sort of person I'm much of a home bird I like to be around the family and friends um, did my foundation years in the local hospitals in the Midlands 
um, and then decided I wanted to be a family doctor. And so that's where you choose after the foundation years that you which direction you want to be. And if you want to be a surgeon, you go down the, the surgical training program. If you want to be a GP, you enter what's called the GPBTS scheme. And so I did that and I worked in Wolverhampton and Warsaw at those hospitals, um, still recovering from the PTSD from that experience. But that's that's one for another interview. But um, yeah, got, went through my program and in that you're kind of taking on three months of pediatrics, four months of gynecology. They tool you up for, you know, the, the, the career program that you have in general practice where you actually have to know a lot about a lot of different subjects. You know, in a clinic in GP, you can be doing gynecology, one patient, the next it's mental health. Um, the, the next it's a fungal toenail infection and a bad back and and everything in between so you have to be kind of trained to jump from subject to subject and know a little bit about everything um, and so yeah just uh, moved down at the start of the pandemic um, the pandemic and um, it was very quiet as I said in the first interview with you it was very quiet spent a lot of time twiddling my thumbs you know a quarter filled surgeries to a third filled surgeries no guidance as to what was going on in terms of treatment. It was literally a triage. Can you breathe? Can you not breathe over a telephone? And if you couldn't breathe, you'd be into the hospital um, to be ventilated or follow the COVID protocol. Uh, and if you could breathe, you were given, you were telling the patients to have the LEMSIP, honey and lemon uh, and relax and go to sleep and, and sleep, sweat it out. And that was about it. That was all we were told. And so I spent a lot of time in the local hospitals, ITUs, et cetera, in, in the middle of Birmingham and the, the district general that I worked in. Um, and seeing how empty these places were, you know, I was offered a job at the Nightingale Hospital um, because of my training. I took, uh, I forgot to say, you know, in my GP training, I also worked a lot of A&E shifts and kind of hit the middle grade rotor. I've got that much experience of ED. So effectively as a doctor now, as it stands, I've got ED training, I've got urgent care training, I've got primary care training. And I'm a published scientist. I forgot to say that bit in between the chemistry and back to school to do chemistry. I went and started to do a master's degree um, where I published some work on angiogenesis and I'm a public scientist as well. So a currently unemployed public scientist with, um, you know, a science degree, a medical degree, four year program and 15 years experience of, of, um, of working as a doctor. And, you know, the feedback I have is good. I've never had a complaint until COVID. Uh, until all the, the vexatious complaints from Twitter came along. I've always had really good colleague feedback, really good patient feedback. Um, never a complaint, not even, you know, within in-house, as it were. Um, so it's been quite a hard pill to take, the fact that, you know, the, the qualifications I have um, don't ever give me the opportunity for a conversation, as I said at the introduction. I just, I'd, I'd welcome a conversation, you know, I've always said in all the interviews I've done, I hope I'm wrong. That's the difference between you know, for want of a better phrase, this side and the pro-vaccine side is that, you know, that they're quite angry and aggressive in their approach, whereas I quite happily would be wrong all day long and accept any remedial data. It's just nobody offers me that remedial data ever. You know, I've, I've stood on my six pillars, as I've said, all the way through this. I've kept away from rabbit holes in interviews at the very least. I do admit I do to go down the odd rabbit hole on social media, but the pillars are, um, you know, informed consent, um, bodily autonomy, you know, letting people know what you're going to inject them in. And actually, if they don't want it, they're within their rights not to. You know, I hear about horror stories of doctors refusing exemptions, for example, and they don't know why they're refusing it. As a doctor, I'm a patient advocate. You know, I'm an advocate. And if they don't want it and they considered it, I'm there to counsel them the pros and the cons. And if they don't like the idea at the end of it, I'm not there to threaten them. And that's what we saw in the COVID response. It was a coercion. It was a threat. 
And when you coerce somebody, informed consent's out the window. Number two, it was safety in pregnancy. Number three, it was safety in children. Not only the safety and the lack of data that was not present pre-rollout in both cohorts, you know, the, the, the benefits weren't there. No one died of COVID in the, in the under-18 cohort. So I don't know where this whole thing about bringing the age all the way down from, you know, where, where the high-risk patients were, the comorbid, the obese. You know, I think the average age of death was 83, 84, something in that region. And so why are they going for six-month-olds? I just can't understand that. It just doesn't make sense. And then finally, you know, I've locked horns about lockdowns. I've locked horns about masks, about their futility, the collateral damage thereof, and we see in that today. Things like mental health, you know, I see a lot of mental health in adolescence and the main thing is apart from the gender ideology and strange stuff around um being born in the wrong body you've also got the whole lockdowns was the big trigger of when people started cutting themselves etc um you know and i it's just not right is it we're locking these children down making them wear masks keep distances apart from each other and that leaves scars literally leaves scars and the final one is the vaccine injured so i've never vaccinated anyone ever um for covid or otherwise um, but the, the, the cases that I have, they're just, I mean, I've dealt with three this morning. They're harrowing. The reason I've lost my voice is because I'm spending a long time with these people listening to them. And actually it's the first time they've been heard. They've been the, the classic cases, you know, healthy, fit, young, 25 to 35 year old took the jab to, you know, for example, go on holiday to get to a stag do, to go to a wedding, the other side of the world. And they were told they had to, despite recovering from COVID and having positive antibodies, you know, in certain cases, they were then vaccinated under the guise of safe and effective uh, on top of natural immunity, which just doesn't make sense. You would never give somebody a flu jab after they've recovered from flu three weeks ago. You'd, you know, you'd trust in the body's natural immunity that particular year. Um, but these people are gaslit, simple as that. They, they, they've met with a response from their doctor that is angry, aggressive, dismissive, rude. Um, I've got to the point now where I tell patients not to even mention, could it be the vaccine? But there's that temporal relationship that cannot be ignored, that these people were fit and healthy. They had the vaccine two or three days later. Sometimes it's two or three weeks later, but their health took a downturn thereafter. And it's everything from general malaise, tiredness, brain fog, cognitive dysfunction. Um, all the way down to acute neuroinflammatory autoimmune presenting symptoms. And, you know, they go off to their GP, they get gaslit and dismissed, told it's absolutely nothing to do with the vaccine. Um, they get referred to a neurologist if they're really lucky, get to wait nine to 10 months whilst deteriorating in between, not having any remedial advice as to what they can be doing in the interim to improve their symptoms. Um, and then they see the neurologist who, again, because they've said it could be the vaccine, dismisses them, doesn't even touch them with a tendon hammer. Massive reports of doctors not even examining the patients from these poor people. Um, and then being told they've got functional neurological disorder. A girl yesterday I spoke to, um, athletic girl, footballer, um, gymnast, very fit, after the Moderna, couldn't breathe, can hardly go up the stairs. Two years of gaslighting and being told there's nothing wrong with her. She's making it up like it's fun to pretend that you've got a chest problem. Um, can't get my head around that. I can't get my head around what has happened to my colleagues and I just appeal them to to them to, you know, consult their consult the reason. I keep saying it in other interviews that what ask yourself why you became a doctor. Just remember that medical school interview. And that's the question you get asked first and foremost every interview. Why do you want to be a doctor? And just look yourself in the mirror when you go to work and say, you know, why am I doing this? Am I doing it? And I use politicians as an example. You've got politicians that are 
career politicians. They're there for the glory. They're there for the career progression. And then you've got vocational. Um, and we see that in people like Andrew Bridger. You know, he didn't need all this trouble, you know, but yeah, all he's done is ask questions and he's got cancelled. Dave Carton's asked questions yet to be answered. He gets cancelled. Footballers like Matt Letizia asks questions, gets cancelled. There's this whole cancel culture about um, about asking questions. And it's very, very bizarre. Now, in a time where, you know, with wokeism, anyone can be and say and do anything they wish, everything's validated, freedom of speech and all that, unless you're an anti-vaxxer and you can say whatever you want to him. It does make me angry, Debbie. It really does that this has happened. It's unjust. But you know, you're not an anti-vaxxer, are you, David? Because as you've said, you know, um, and, and I would urge people to go and look at our first interview that we did with Dr. David Carland, and the link will be in the article that's beneath this, because you're not an anti-vaxxer because you had, you've had two injections yourself. And I know that the second one, I mean, please go and have a look at the first interview, because so, we don't want to go back onto territory that we've already been on. But the second injection, you felt that you were almost coerced into having it. And I know because uh, what viewers might not know is that uh, David and I have kept in very regular contact right from the get-go. Not only do we both live in Cornwall, but I'm a trained nurse, David's a doctor. We're both singing from the same hymn sheet. So we've kept in contact. And I've remembered calls coming in from you, David, to say that you weren't very well yourself and that you'd found a magnet attached to your arm. Um, and that you have been suffering from serious adverse reactions. So, I mean, I think my first question, I mean, I have so many, but my first question is, how are you as a result of having this injection? Because you're finding out so much about what's in it or what's not in it or what could happen in two years, five years down the line. How do you feel about knowing all this information and yet having had two injections yourself? Brilliant question. Yeah, um, I feel like a ticking time bomb, if I'm honest. Um, how, how has it affected me? I mean, around the vicinity of the injection, the first one I was in bed for three days after it. Headache. I remember saying to my wife that, you know, it feels like, I think I used the phrase, this is, doesn't feel anything of this world. Just felt like my head was being shook, like electric shocks going through. Second one was absolutely fine, actually, believe it or not. Never felt it go in. Um, I made it quite clear that I didn't want it. I won't use the exact phrase during an interview, but I made it quite clear that I wasn't consenting to this. Um, and it was all about the coercion of losing my job. But, you know, I was okay for six or seven months, I'm not going to lie. But over the the six months after that and beyond, even to this day, really, I noticed a big thing around mental fatigue, mental fatigue, brain fog, memory. Um, sometimes, like I said, I do two or three appointments in the, in the morning doing my private work. Um, and by the third appointment, I'm slowing my words sometimes. I'm finding word finding difficulty. Even now, after the, what, 20 minutes we've done so far, I feel that that... You know, that word finding, I have to really think about what I'm going to say before I say it. Um, other people have had lots of different experiences. I've not heard about a vaccine injury case that's identical to the previous. Everyone's got different time frames. Everyone's got different bits of neurology. Again, it doesn't fit into a, um, a pigeonhole. You know, when you hear, when I take a history from a neuro patient, for example, and they've got a tingle here and a numbness there and a weakness down there, and it doesn't fit into a conventional diagnosis. So I've never considered myself vaccine injured. I never will. Um, I don't want to be called any names by anyone, but um, yeah, it's it's kept me, it's made my brain. I, I ran a, a survey on my Twitter last week asking if people who'd been vaccinated on my following had had any cognitive issues and seven out of 10 people 
said that they'd had cognitive or memory issues since the vaccine. So, um, and then you go on that quest then a bit like, you know, with the research regarding COVID data, um, you start researching because uh, you're not going to find it in allopathic medicine and conventional medicine because you know, vaccine injury is just uh, it's a fantasy of crazies like Dr. Cartland. It's, um, you know, people, people aren't researching it. Um, you know, people are being told it's long COVID, for example. You know, I met somebody the other week who had numbness and weakness in their leg. It was almost like a Guillain-Barre syndrome where you get numbness and weakness from, you know, your toes working the way up your legs. Started in October. And in October, um, they just happened to have their autumn spike vax booster, jab number four. That was when it all started two weeks afterwards. And I said to the patient, I said, well, what are the doctors saying here? I was covering as a locum. And they said, well, I said, it's, um, they think it's an asymptomatic long COVID. So the lie they'd spanned to the patient was that they had a disease they never knew they had. And some many months later, they're developing some um, neurological consequence that happened to be two weeks after the booster had nothing to do with the booster, obviously, um, sacrilege to say. Uh, and that's what the experience of the vaccine injured is, that they just get told it's absolutely not um, the vaccine. But the same doctors saying this were the doctors that were putting COVID-19 on death certificates of metastatic lung cancer patients or, you know, people who died of strokes. You know, so it's, you know, it, it, it doesn't it doesn't transfer that due diligence across from, you know, saying absolutely not in the differential to COVID caused absolutely everything. So. Yeah, so in, in summary, um, it has affected me. Um, I've researched lots of stuff. I've written, you know, from my own experience of speaking to patients and their anecdotal evidence of things that they use, supplements, health foods, um, you know, diets. A diet we've just spoke about off air that I've started, you know, a, a kind of ketogenic, autophagy, starvation diet. Um, lots and lots of supplements and, and inspiration drawn really from World Council for Health, for example. They've written a spike protein detox protocol. Um, again, lots of supplements and nutritional advice on there. Uh, and FLCCC, the eye recover protocol. Again, if anyone's vaccine injured or consider themselves to be in ill health, I'd look at those two protocols. Um, as well as I've written a recommendation protocol as well that I follow. I've, I take everything on that list. Um, and there are improvements. You know, I know when I've not taken it, put it that way. I know when I've t- I take about 15 to 20 supplements every day. Um, you know, from natokinase to NAC to turmeric, ginger, just up garlic, which my wife loves. Um, you know, and and things are things. Are, vitamin B is the big one. This B complex, I take that, and I know when I've not took it because my brain's all over the place in the morning. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, you see alarming stuff as we have this last few weeks from the biodistribution studies, for example. We know this mRNA is expressed in the spike protein product thereof in every tissue of the body, not just every tissue of the body, but bodily secretions as well. We know that spike protein is present in um, things like breast milk and sweat. You know, we know it's infiltrated tissues. Anna, uh, Professor Anna Bucard, um, who just passed away, sadly, two or three weeks ago now, you know, he was doing a lot of post-mortem work on, you know, the tissue infiltration of the spike protein. And it's absolutely harrowing to know that you know, and I go back to the first principle of this from an immunological perspective. We were given the instruction manual in simple terms to the human cell to make a non-human protein and not just any protein. It was the spike protein that they chose. The spike protein was what they felt was, you know, the thing causing the, the deaths from thrombogenesis, the deaths from the cytokine storm. It was a pro-inflammatory protein. It was the protein that was involved in attaching to the cells. So, you know, they picked a candidate, not only a, a human cell to make a non-human protein, but that protein, and that was only ever going to end one way, if you think about it, the human cell making a non-human protein. The body's going to attack it, isn't it? 
And that's what we're seeing in the neuroinflammatory reactions and lots and lots of autoimmunity, seeing lots and lots of clots. That was one of the really early warning signs for me back in the day. Um, when I first spoke, I'd seen a hell of a lot of menstrual issues, a hell of a lot of blood clots unprovoked. Uh, I say unprovoked without previously um, classic risk factors. Um, and this was all in tight proximity to the vaccine going in the arm. So I've just said what I saw, really, Debbie. I've not said this for fun. I've not done it for money. Um, all interviews have always been for zero pounds and zero pence. You know, when I, if I do any speeches anywhere, always for free. So I get called a grifter. The reason I'm justifying that I don't do anything for money is because... I don't, <laughs> you know, it's cost me my career. The good news is NHS will not win. Um, I'm motivated to, to fight back and you know, drcotton.com is going very well. Um, other opportunities have come up to do other work privately. So you know, it feels like I've broken a little bit of Stockholm syndrome, actually getting away from the NHS. It really does. And I want to focus in on that, David, too, because, you know, despite all that you've been going through and your family, because you've got bills to pay just the same as all of us. Despite all of this, you are still practicing. And I know that people watching will want to know, how do they get in touch with you? Where do they find you? How can they contact you? Yeah, I have to think hard now because I've been banned from most platforms. So I'll tell you where I am available. That's probably the easiest way. So I'm on Twitter. So if you find me on Twitter at Cartland David, but be careful, there are imposters that are using my face and and credentials to mislead people so it's at Cartland David I also have set up a private um, consultancy service so I call it sort of health advocacy I call it clinical navigation and signposting health coaching um, it's turned into a bit of a vaccine injury clinic really almost by by mistake it's because my name's gone around that I've helped people and they've improved and and so I get a lot of that as well so it's drcartland.com that we set up and I'm accessible to book for private consultations they are telemedicine based um, and, it, and the scenario I run there really is to um, to kind of give a second opinion to help people navigate what they're being told or the gaslighting that's going on, you know, giving a medical opinion um, to try and say, you know, with those symptoms, this is what I would do if I was your GP. That's the scenario we run in most of the consults is, you know, let's accept I am a GP, but I'm not your GP. Um, tell me the symptoms obviously we're slightly limited by the fact it's a telemedicine consult so you know I can't do a cranial nerve examination or check out somebody's hemorrhoids if that's what they've got Uh, but what I can do is say you know there's a lot of stuff for example over the counter that you can buy allopathic that will help there's certain schemes on the NHS where you can get certain prescribables at certain times of the week uh, called the minor ailment scheme or if I think somebody needs a scan from the symptoms that presented red flags for a brain tumor to me you know, and the key to all of this service, Deborah, is um, is listening. It's the the, the big feedback is um, it's me number one, and number two, it's listening, just being heard, having a history taken in outside of the confines of an eight minute consult. Really, you know, I've been back in the NHS the last few weeks working in surgeries that are on ten minute appointments still. By the time you've got somebody answering the phone and you've said a brief hello and a quick introduction as to who you are, you're five minutes in. Um, you rush through a history, you're not asking the open questions, you're drilling into the closed questions to get to the crux of a decision, which often ends in a drug, you know, a drug, a, a medicine, a pill. Um, and that's how transactional medicines become now. And that's all over a telephone still, um, where they're telling, you know, 90 year old patients that you need to ring in and fill in an e-consult form um, on, the, on the internet. We're three years on now. You know, I'm surrounded by doctors, for example, that are wearing PPE still. You know, the vaccines either work or they don't. You know, if your vaccine works, we'll get rid of your PPE. Not that that works anyway. Um, but, you know, 
you can't have it both ways. I don't know if people have turned into strange germphobes over the last few years. I can't understand it. I wanted to ask you about that, actually. I, I, I do because I cannot understand why your colleagues aren't listening to you. I, I just, how anybody can watch pregnant women having an injection, an in, experimental injection, how anybody can um, condone injecting children when this isn't all experimental. I mean, anything for children in my book is just a no-no. Um, but we could talk about the vaccine injured for literally hours. And as you know, we support at the UK column, we always support those with vaccine injuries. And we regularly have Charlotte um, or one of the vaccine injured from UKCV family coming on and talking to us. I just want to very slightly swerve a little bit to um, something else that many people are concerned about is that going to visit your GP is no longer what you would expect a visit to the GP to look like. We've all been um, subjected to sending pictures of our bodies online because we can't get uh, a face-to-face -face appointment with a GP. But worryingly during the pandemic, um, we were seeing patients that were being put on accelerated life-ending plans, if you like. And we got very concerned and still are very concerned at the use of midazolam and morphine. And many patients who were not expected to die, but weren't getting any better. What is the role of a GP, David? I mean, when it comes to a, these clinical frailty scores, are we all graded before we've gone into the GP surgery on our age and our medical condition? Has a decision about our forward care already been made? Um, and has this affected the do not resuscitate notices that we've seen people um, been on and uh, completely unknowingly. I mean, I've, I've got a, a, another person in Cornwall, funnily enough, um, all seems to happen in Cornwall, who lost their father and they didn't even know that their father was on a do not resuscitate notice. They hadn't been consulted. They hadn't been spoken to. They had no knowledge. What is the procedure? Because people are getting, a lot of people that I'm speaking to, they're reluctant to go to their GPs now because they're not sure if they can trust their GP. What's your advice and what's your experience on this accelerated or life-ending care plans that we seem to be seeing? These are deep questions, Debbie. <laughs> You're testing me this afternoon. So, yeah, I mean, I've been out of the loop in a way from the official kind of what happened. All I can tell you is my experience, which is what I always do. Um, as we touched on off air, you know, I saw a lot of, DNARs being filled in. I don't think there was a protocol. Um, the only protocol I was ever told about in the coffee room really was something called a treatment escalation plan. So you would literally, when you couldn't see your own relatives, you would go and you know drop in on Mrs. Jones, who was in her 90s and having carers coming in, and you would make a judgment call based upon, um, you know, do you think this lady would be alive in six months? Would you be surprised? And if you're, if you're feeling, your gut feeling, and that's all it came down to was, yeah, I'd be really surprised if Doris was alive in six months. Then you could then proceed to complete without any relative involvement. That was my experience of it. Anyway, these things would get done, signed, sealed, put in the notes without any relative knowledge. Sometimes they would, if they're a good doctor, they would involve the family, um, like 
um, respect forms, for example. Um, you know, respect forms are for planning. You know, if somebody's got, you know, if they're a bit older and they're started to think about their kind of final years of life, you can do things called a respect form. And that's a kind of multidisciplinary doctor, nurse, um, family members to kind of pre-arrange, pre-agree. Um, but during the pandemic, this was kind of treatment escalation plan, as I mentioned. And it was, you know, if, if that judgment was, you'd be surprised if that person was alive in six months. You would then be able to put that in the notes. Sometimes that entailed a DNAR, the red form, which is do not attempt resuscitation, as you mentioned. Um, sometimes that would be, you know, the escalation plan would be if this 91-year-old with dementia rang up breathless and coughing, the pre-decision had been made by the medical team, the GP, I half the time didn't know the patient. Um, would say, you know, we the, the treatment escalation, it would be at antibiotics orally because she's a nursing home resident with dementia, for example. I've, you know, going on to other areas, you know, I've, I've heard of patients in my own clinic saying that, you know, their relatives have been given, um, you know, learning difficulty relatives or learning disability relatives have been given red forms, red forms, which is the DNAR form. You know, lots of cases like that. As you mentioned, the patients feeding back that their elderly relatives have, have left the hospital with a red form in the discharge papers mentioned. No conversation with the family. It's just absurd, isn't it? And then as you touched on with the midazolam and all the rest of it, you know, once these tech forms would be filled in, not only would the red form be signed and sealed um, and, the, and the treatment escalation would be pre well, pre, um, pre-notified on the notes so that the next doctor along would see uh, but then you'd also get a lot of anticipatory. They used to call it anticipatory prescribing. So like Doris rings up at 91. The nursing home manager said she's been bubbly and chesty and non-responsive and delirious. They read the treatment escalation plan in the out-of-hours notes or the, the normal GP. They would say, well, you know, it's oral antibiotics, and if she doesn't respond, then we'll get a syringe driver on. And that was what was going on. You know, we've seen the massive prescriptions of these drugs and how they correlate with peaks in deaths and and that's probably where I'm going to leave it without being too controversial in that, you know, I've seen it with my own eyes, patients in the community that have had syringe drivers when actually they should have been admitted to hospital under the surgeons or the medics. But decisions have been made ahead of time. That's my answer. I think it's fair to say that um, a patient's fate could be sealed by the pen of a doctor or Dr. Cartland. I want to ask you because I know, I know from speaking to you over these last couple of years, sometimes when we go to a GP surgery, we automatically expect to see a GP. And if we're seeing a nurse practitioner, we're told we're seeing a nurse practitioner. However, we seem to have got, and I didn't, I didn't even know these people existed before you told me they existed, but we seem to have another form of doctor that isn't a doctor that is a noctor and yes everybody if you're listening and thinking what did she just say there I said noctor so doctor as in with an n noctor does exist and if you go into a search bar and you put in noctor it will come up but a noctor is not a doctor and I know that you've had a few experiences where you've been contacted by people within the surgery that aren't as highly qualified as you asking really simple questions like patients got a rash and it ends up to be ringworm or I don't know how to do an abdominal examination. Tell us your experience of how many noctas there are appearing in the system or can we be guaranteed to see somebody like yourself, a highly qualified, experienced, UK, homegrown, NHS trained 
general practitioner. Can we expect that now? Um, in short, yes, but you've got to jump through hoops to do that. So effectively, most most surgeries now are uh, triage, total triage, they call it. So everything has to be triaged. Uh, and, and, and you can kind of understand in a way because, you know, demand has outstripped supply in terms of doctors. That's, that's a, that was a conundrum. Doctors didn't want to do general practice anymore. The bombs were not on the seats in the surgeries. So they had this bright idea of bringing in people that weren't doctors. Um, and so, you know, they, they were good and they were bad, like they were good and bad GPs, but their training is very short in terms of, um, I'll give you an example of a physician's associate. So I've lost track of all the acronyms now because you've got ACP, ENP, um, PA, which is a physician's associate. So you can do a banking degree, you can do an art degree, you can do a history degree, you can go to Exeter University and do a physician's associate diploma and come out at the end of two years with a degree and an SHO, which is a year five doctor's salary, um, quite well looked after during the training for starters in terms of, you know, I come out of the university with a hefty, you know, five-figure debt to society, whereas I don't think they do, let's say. Um, and and they're basically they're, they're, their training is all around sitting in with the doctor and learning, just listening, like rabbiting really, like reflective practice. They're, they're just listening, and when you throw them a curveball, so they're learning these. You know, doctors are bad enough at prescriptive learning. That's what med school is. It teaches you guidance and following pathways, etc. Whereas these guys sit in with the doctor, and they're just looking and listening, and barely any questions. And you know, you're throwing a little curveball like the patient's pregnant. Complete rabbit in the headlights. I've had patients, you know, and what they're, what they're doing is they're kind of taking out some of the kind of easier stuff with respect. So my list ends up being complex um, neural, neuralgic pain or mental health issues, etc. chronic pain as complicated, vague symptoms, 16 of those in 10 minutes, whereas my colleague then gets 25 minutes to deal with an ear pain or a toe pain. And then they ultimately, I mean, they learn through their training to, do no harm, which is quite ironic, um, and to <clears throat> protect their careers, I'm going to say that, and, and escalate where possible. If they're not sure, escalate, which is, in principle, that's the right thing to do if you're not sure. <clears throat> but when you've got a patient who's got earwax and the, the person hasn't identified it's earwax, for example, what's happened in the training? The impact of mental health on not just patients that you're seeing at the moment, but also on your colleagues, on your colleagues that you are seeing, <laughs> um, other GPs, other doctors in the NHS. I mean, you know, we've got underqualified, we've clearly got a whole myriad of professionals and nobody seems to know who anybody is because as you said, there's so many titles. It's the same for nurses. Um, you know, that you used to have two types of nurse, um, a qualified nurse in my day, an SRN and an SEN. And it was easy because you could see by the uniforms. Now, you don't know who you're seeing. So what impact has all of this had on patients' mental health and your colleagues as well? Are you seeing a huge rise in mental health illness coming through the door? The doctor's perspective, um, doctors nowadays, we're, we're in our room all the time. You, you don't get to mix. You're inside your room. You're dealing with complexity. There's never a quick UTI or a bad back anymore. You know, there's also throwing the mix, the, the being involved directly in a, a COVID vaccination regime and, and, and all the guilt associated with that. Definitely seeing some strange behaviour from my colleagues, really, but I'll leave that there. Um, moving on to, to patients, yeah, massive, massive upsurges in. You know, what used to be the classic kind of presentation of 
uh, kind of middle-aged, feeling a bit low, etc. has now become, you know, and, and you've got to think about how the mental health system set up. It's set up as crisis management. That's all you ever do. So I always ask people to think from a doctor's perspective, you know, if you're coming in, if you come to see me, Debbie, tomorrow, and you're really depressed and you've got five or six different things that are precipitating that stress, bereavement, job, etc. I've got seven or eight minutes to sort you out. What can I do in that seven or eight minutes? I can hear a brief history and then I can offer them some counselling, which there's a 16 to 18 week waiting list for. Um, I offer them the private, you know, but no one's got any money, which which is fair enough given the cost of living crisis. But um, And then I, I, the, the other option is um, tablets. And this is where we're seeing the tablets come from, the SSRI prescribing going through the roof because there's such a lot of unhappy people. We've come through all sorts of psychological warfare, fear porn in the last three years. We've got, you know, aside from COVID, you know, you look on the TV and all you ever see is negativity, you know, riots in France. You've got the Ukraine-Russia stuff. You've got the, everything's going up in price. You know, your bread's trebled in price and, your, you know, electricity's quadrupled. It's just, you know, everyone's just down and depressed and hopeless. And, you know, how deliberate that is, one can speculate, but... Know, a lot of mental health. It's probably the more so than ever before this year. I've been dealing with a lot more mental health in the bits of NHS work that I've done. And we're certainly hearing of very, very many more reports, especially of youngsters with mental health problems. And um, it's a story that we are going to be keeping a very close eye on um, at the column. Um, I want to touch on a bit of an elephant in the room now. Um, and you may or may not have seen um, or witnessed anything to do with this, but have you seen any anybody coming through your door or an uptick in young women or young men coming through through your door with fertility issues, for example? Because there's been a lot of talk about um, sperm rates going down, fertility rates are going down. Is there any explanation for this? Are you seeing an uptick or are we just seeing reports in the media to to frighten us? Yeah, as you said, it's a rather large elephant prancing around the room, really. And um, yeah, I would say, I mean, even just three or four weeks ago, I was working back in the Midlands doing some locum work and three men, three men in a week, just over a week, had what we call azospermia. Azospermia means there was literally none, no sperm in the ejaculate. Um, lots of fertility referrals. That was one of the things I noticed really early on, actually, that you know, along with the clots and the menstrual issues, and obviously there's a direct and indirect relation if people's periods are misbehaving after the vaccine, and that's well documented as a phenomenon. Then I always ask people, think about the mechanism behind that. You know, why would a COVID jab affect your menstruation? How would that be? What's the pathophysiology there? These are questions that remain unanswered, but should we should have known a bit more about before we started jabbing healthy young women, for example. So, yeah, menstrual issues massively on the rise, sperm issues, um, women coming in saying in their 20s, in their prime, saying that they they can't conceive, can you refer to fertility? And then you look at the data, as you touched on, you know, the data is showing fertility rates. So I've not kept 100% up to date on that. I've been down a lot of rabbit holes lately, but I remember about six months ago, uh, pretty much across the world, that the fertility figures were um, – you know, fertility rates have dropped off by a certain amount. Um, birth rates have dropped off um, by a good third across the board, give or take. You know, it's about a quarter to a third drop off in the whole world's birth rates, you know, and I, I don't know the reason to explain that. I don't know. Um, we can but speculate, and that's the beauty of all of this, really, when you step back from it is how can you ever prove in a living patient? We haven't got anything to prove that 
this is the vaccine, for example. We can do post-mortem things. We can do, like I mentioned earlier, Professor Bukart about the post-mortem immunohistochemistry staining and they're staining the hearts and finding that they're deeply infiltrated with spike protein. He's just, done, well, he hasn't just because he's passed away, sadly, but he did an expose on testicle infiltration of the, um, the testes with spike protein. You know, the tissues are making this spike protein. It's got to go somewhere. So my question is, you know, it's going into the bone marrow. It's going into the brain. You know, there's lots of stuff about, you know, pathophysiology being described by other American doctors, for example, that are talking about tumor suppressor genes being switched off by this jab. Um, work by um, a, a Japanese um, professor, I can't remember the exact name at the moment, but and Kevin McKiernan, who have looked at this SV40 promoter sequence that they've found and they've isolated from. You know, it's a plasmid found in the vials that they've actually purified, and it's a tumor oncogene. It's a switch-on gene called an SV40 promoter. This is this is front of the papers news. This should be, you know, this should be on the yellow ticker tape going across the screen. You know, why is it there? Who put it there? You know, what? How nefarious can it be? You know, and and you know, you asked originally about the fertility issue. You know, who? Where's this come from? What? Who's who's running the show here? What? Why would this jab cause fertility issues? You know, what else? What are the other confounders here? You know, stress does impact fertility. Let's be fair. Um, but at the same time, there seems to be a direct correlation to, I mean, these, these, these blokes, I mentioned the three chaps, they all had had three jabs. In fact, one had had four young men and they're azoospermic. Like I say, they've had, so there's always that correlation. I do keep one eye on the vaccine status. Contrary to popular belief, I don't pin everything on the vaccine. Um, you know, I still work patients up as in, you know, what else could this be? What's the full differential? Yes, the vaccine's on there. However, what else could this be? People do develop MS, for example. People are infertile, but the figures I'm seeing um, are through the roof in all, all aspects. I, I, the biggest tap on the shoulder I get from the career are midwives um, saying what they're seeing in these, um, you know, these obstetric situations. Moms having funny turns during normal vaginal deliveries to do with their heart cardiac arrests in labouring moms, the placentas they're delivering in the third stage of labour are not the placentas they used to deliver. And again, what's the mechanism by which people's placentas are becoming, well, from going from fleshy pink organs of nutrition to, you know, these shriveled, calcified, dusky things that they're delivering after the babies come out? Uh, one, one midwife said that they're delivering syndromic babies. And I don't know what she meant by this by that to this day, but you know, just babies that just don't look well nourished, for example, and lots of crash sections, lots of babies running into distress. What are the mechanisms here? We know the spike protein, you know, is, is found in things like the breast milk. It's, it crosses the placenta barrier. You know, this is, how is this happening? You know, the multiple mechanisms. And I'm, I'm asking these questions because I don't know the answer. And I'm hoping that somebody cleverer than me will tell me. Obviously, we've given this to the whole world, pretty much all the people that accepted it. You know, so these questions should have been answered. I know there was the speed of science that we had to move at, um, or, uh, but that seems to have been an excuse for cutting corners of you know, due diligence and safety, etc. All under, under the guise of this being a vaccine. And as you know, my recent tweets have been pointing me in the direction of this was never a vaccine. This was a gene immunomodulatory therapy, and and that says it in the. Uh, Moderna documents, the sex submission that I posted recently. It says it in the Pfizer documents from the post-marketing work. Um, it, it just beggars belief. It's a, and, and, you know, you've got to remember if you are, you're Doris and you're 82, you're watching the news and you go in to see your friendly nurse who you've known for 10 years and she said, roll up your sleeve, Doris. You're here for your 15th COVID jab. 
Um, and she wouldn't question it because the nurse is saying it's safe and effective. No questions asked. But the connotations of the correct question, which really should have been the way informed consent was garnered, it should have been, Doris, this is a new drug. We've got this disease. We don't know much about the disease. But we think as a community of doctors and nurses that this is the way to go. We think it's a, this um, gene therapy. So firstly, tell them it's a gene therapy. Secondly, tell them, you know, that we don't really know the long-term, medium-term safety data. You know, probably at some point, a little bit about what you can do if you do get COVID that isn't a vaccine or getting ventilated. And then let them decide. You know, that's called informed consent. And certainly don't coerce them. Don't tell them that they can't see their family unless or go on holiday unless. There's no role for that. So... What you've said is absolutely right. And I have questioned uh, Professor Munir Permahamid and I've questioned Dr. June Rain by email many times uh, because when they say, oh, uh, it's not a cause of of the vaccine, the vaccine wasn't to blame, Um, we're only looking at yellow cards and and we're analysing them because not all of them are vaccine-induced, then fine, you can say that, but... Unless you eliminate that, you're never going to know. And clearly, you know, if you go back to the yellow cards and thalidomide, after 500 cases of thalidomide, the drug was dropped. It was stopped. We are now over 500,000. And June Rain seems to boast that 100,000 side effects was all that they were expecting, like it was, you know, a tiny amount. But actually, in reality, it's way over 500,000 because we know they're not releasing the data now. And clearly, we've learned more about the injection, as you've rightly said, SV40, which seems to be a sledgehammer to waking up cancer. We've also got the recent reports from Dr. Naomi Wolf and the Pfizer documents of P1 and P2. And I'm sure we'll come back and talk about all of these things another time. One more elephant that I want to touch on, and it is a big elephant in the room, and I would really love to know your opinion in that um, when I was speaking to Dr. Naomi Wolf um, recently and all of her her team of investigators have been doing reports on Pfizer, on the Pfizer preliminary, the primary documents that Pfizer were forced to release. Dr. Peter McCulloch in particular has been doing a lot of work on shedding. And it's a question that we get asked a lot from unvaccinated people in that perhaps they're married and their wife or their husband is vaccinated, their partner, their boyfriend, uh, their girlfriend, whoever, how safe is it, do you think, um, for them to carry on an intimate relationship without being worried about the risk of shedding? Does shedding exist? Um, If it does exist, which it appears to from the evidence that we're seeing, what precautions should we be taking? And should this be something that a lot more people are talking about? How serious do you do you think shedding is? These are some big elephant questions, Debbie. What are you doing to me? <laughs> so, yeah, so shedding, um, yeah, I was very much on the fence, I'll be honest, when I heard it. I thought it sounded ludicrous. And then what happened again, as I always do, I listen to patients and I was hearing stories of, for example, hairdressers would contact me and say, I've not had the vaccine, but I've been doing cut and blow dries on five vaccinated women today, they were boasting they'd had six shots apiece. And then I went home and I had a postmenopausal bleed that evening. I felt strange. Um, that's one example of many I could 
um, without labouring the point. People have been around vaccinated patients who've been highly vaccinated and they feel awful within the close proximity of almost like a kind of flu-like illness or something specific like that lady reported to me, menstrual illness. I always, I always explain it in terms of the pathophysiology. We touched on it slightly earlier in the interview that you know we're training the human cell to produce a non-human spike protein. Um, we we do know now, but we were told at the time it would stay in your deltoid, but subsequent biodistribution studies have come out that show it goes from head to toe, including crossing the blood-brain barrier. So principally, I mean, and, and that, that data from Pfizer actually said, and from the TGA release not so long back actually, that you know, bodily secretions were affected. You know, and if your human cells are spreading this around, you know, you've got lipid nanoparticles flying around your body. You know, they weren't aspirating at the injection site. So there's, sometimes this was getting directly injected into the vasculature of a patient. Um, and so the principle itself, why would, um, for example, a, um, a, gland, a sweat gland not produce that spike protein? It's a human cell. It's doing the same thing as all the other cells that come into contact with the lipid nanoparticle and the mRNA. It's producing the spike protein. That's what it says on the patient information leaflet. Um, so it's not, you know, absurd to think that it's in semen or it's in, well, we know it's in breast milk. It's been analysed. We know, we know it's in bodily fluids. So, you know, if I cough in your face Debbie I've obviously had two then spike protein galore and you know people ask me a lot how long does it last for but we don't know again it's another don't know of many you know they stopped looking after a period I think it was about six months and it was still in an upward curve in terms of measuring spike protein in people months and months after their vaccine and you know we've had no better offers um going back to what you mentioned about kind of intercourse I've literally posted something this morning from a, a Dr Alexander I think his name is Paul Alexander um, looking at um, a live blood analysis and he did an analysis of because I don't know if you've seen this um, when you do live blood analysis on patients that are vaccinated and they've got this kind of rouleau formations, a clumping all sorts of weird and wonderful things under the microscope and they look at the blood film um, and then you compare it to a vaccinated person you've got these lovely donut shaped shiny looking red blood cells as they should look um, whereas these look a bit pale and pasty and mottled and misshapen and clumped together in the vaccinated patient. So, you know, what, what he did was he, he did a, a test. You'll have to watch the video, have a look on Twitter, um, where he looked at somebody who was vaccinated and unvaccinated, they had intercourse, and they followed up the blood analysis. And the unvaccinated patient who'd had intercourse with the vaccinated patient had then developed these blood changes. Um, so, you know, this, this is kind of startling stuff, really. And again, goes back to the... Um, why did we not know this before we started jabbing man, woman and child, born and unborn? It really is just a principle. I just can't get my head around. Just to offer a little bit of hope, you know, my advice to patients is, look, let's let's pretend chilling's correct. Let's pretend it's a thing then. We don't know. How do we know? We can't test if, you know, the myocarditis is due to um, spike protein and the COVID jab. We can't prove that. Um, but there is hope. There's lots of detox things now, and we touched on it slightly earlier that there are spike protein detoxes available. Lots of natural things, supplementary things. Um, I find that a lot of people who've got, well, I call it spike proteinopathy. I don't like to cause debate about COVID, long COVID, or vaccine injury, or a bit of both in some cases. That you know, you've got lots of things that you can do to. And I, I focus on three areas. The three areas are. This um, micro-clotting that we seem to see in people that are vaccinated, lots of microvasculature, um, multi-infarction going on. So giving something that will help benefit them with their um, thrombosis. So things like natokinase, seropeptase, 
Um, aspirin, there's nothing wrong with the 75 milligram of aspirin. Obviously, you've got to risk assess the patient. If they've got stomach issues or asthma or kidney issues, you wouldn't give that advice, whether they're on warfarin, for example, but something to soften the blow of a, a procoagulant effect of the vaccine. And we know that that spike protein killed people from dis- disseminated intravascular coagulation, or allegedly so. Um, you know, it was one of the things we, we knew, knew about this virus in inverted commas. Um, the second thing I look at is um, immune system destruction. So I know a lot of people that have had the vaccine that are sick. They're just sick all the time. They're just generally picking up infections. The children I've been seeing that are five to nine that have been having it, they're in and out of their doctor's surgery with fungal rashes and tonsillitis and ear nose. And, and we're in the summer, you know, and these you look at the vaccines that have had two, two mRNA vaccines. So immune system erosion and again we predicted that or people like Geert van der Bosch spoke about this the immune destruction that this was going to cause um, and I, I give an immuno boost to pro, like five things I mentioned and that's vitamin B vitamin C vitamin D magnesium and zinc and these are kind of the immuno booster um, get your immune system kicking and firing on all cylinders advice um, I'll take all of these things that I'm recommending myself by the way just so you know uh, and then the third, the third kind of domain is um, pro-inflammatory or autoimmunity. So we're seeing people in this kind of chronically inflamed, um, lots of autoimmunity presentations. Uh, and so I look at a twofold attack on that, um, one of which is around something called mast cell activation syndrome. And a doctor called Dr. Tina Pierce taught me a lot about that in a, in a conference that I went to last year. Never heard of it through medical school. Never heard of the gut biome. Never heard about any of this sort of stuff. This has all been from my own research outside of medical school. But if you research MCAS, mast cell activation syndrome, you look at the kind of chronic low-level inflammation in the body, and histamine seems to be a key mediator in that. So if you reduce your histamine burden, either through a low histamine diet, antihistamine tablets, um, and things like quercetin, which is a sort of natural version of Montelukast, which is a mast cell stabilizer that we use in brittle asthmatics, <clears throat> people are reporting benefits in their neuroinflammation and their symptoms. So... I'm going to let you off the hook because <laughs> I think you've had a pretty, I have thrown you some real elephants in the room and I am super grateful. And I know that we can do it here on UK Column because you're surrounded by love. You're surrounded by friends. And I know our audience, those that are watching now are going to be incredibly grateful for everything you do. And I know, like you know, because I wrote to the Royal College of General Practitioners and found out that no general practitioner in the United Kingdom knows what is in the injection. None of them. How do I know that? Because as I say, I wrote to Dr. Michael Mulholland, uh, the president of the Royal College of General Practitioners, and he told me that doctors were not informed of the ingredients of the injection or of any of the serious adverse reactions. So I just want to make that clear. But, you know, David, you're a man of God and your faith has enabled you to be fearless and you've carried on standing up no matter how many times you've been knocked down because you've been knocked down by your professional body, you've been knocked down by members of the public, you've been knocked down by pretty much everybody, you've been blacklisted for speaking the truth, for being honest. And I just want everybody to know because there are a million questions that I have even more for you with regards to things like monoclonal antibodies and antivirals, for example. And we'll come to those, I know, on another interview. But I know that today you haven't been feeling too great yourself and you've still agreed to come to talk to us. 
and you're still doing all of this research outside of everything else and you still have a young family to support. And as a young doctor with a whole career in front of you, everything has changed just because you decided to do no harm, be honest, to stand up and look after your patients. And before I throw over to you for the last word, I just want you to know how grateful we are, we all are, because I know it's been really, really difficult um, because we've spoken on many occasions and so many times when you have been knocked down, it's really difficult to get up again. But for people watching, there are still good doctors out there. There are still very highly experienced, qualified doctors out there. And there are doctors you can trust. And Dr. David Cartland is one of them. And I'm very, very proud, both as a human being and as a nurse. And I hope this doesn't sound too cheesy because I genuinely mean it from the bottom of my heart. I'm really proud of you. And we all are really proud of you. And we thank you for everything you're doing. So on that note, Dr. David Cartland, I'm going to hand over to you for the last word. Thank you and lots of love. Thank you, Debbie. Thanks for having me and uh, definitely feel the support from the UK, Carla. It was my first interview and as you mentioned, we've stayed in touch and uh, as, as people probably don't know, I'll call you my mum because uh, that's how it feels. Sometimes I ring up and have a rant and you know, you've set me on the right path or we bounce off data off each other and yeah, it's been very much and um, very much well received. So thank you. Um, yeah, final words really just wanted to touch on trust, really trust in the medical profession, the big feedback I get from patients who come to me now um, after there are the vaccine injury cases or otherwise is that they've just lost trust. They've lost trust in the NHS. They've seen things with their own eyes that have been bad experiences or gaslighting or any of that stuff. And, and I just appeal really to my colleagues. I really do beg and appeal to them that they must be seeing what I'm seeing. It's not been a nice journey as we've touched on throughout this interview and previous interviews, but you know, remember why you became a doctor, as I said that earlier, look in the mirror. Are you happy with keeping quiet about what you're seeing? Some of the alarm bells, remember your duty of candor, remember your duty of care, the oath that you took as a, a doctor or a nurse, really. And you know, I, I do appreciate how difficult that it must be if you have being duped into giving these vaccines on misinformation given to you by the government. I really do appreciate that. That's something I've really learnt myself on reflection in the last sort of six months, really. I've been a bit angry in that six months prior, angry towards my profession, but actually the Christian in me is feeling that I should forgive and forget and we should rebuild now. We should have dialogue, dialogue that's not happened, where we acknowledge the problem, but that's the key, really. It's acknowledge the problem. Um, you know, vaccine injuries are a thing, and they're not a fantasy. They're not something they're made up by Dr. Cotton and the patients. These are real patients, and I'm sure every doctor and nurse in this land are seeing them. Of that, I have no doubt. So let's talk about it. Let's collaborate. Let's start researching. Let's help our patients um, and do what we signed up to do when we became doctors and nurses. And, you know, just we've got to let go of the anger from both sides now, have conversations as adults. And one of the things that really upsets me is that lack of conversation, that judgment of me. Um, based upon no conversation not one doctor really has sat down with me and given me the remedial advice or the um, you know the rebuttal information or the study that you know completely makes me look silly um, 
let's just sit and talk. Let's give each other another chance and let's try and rebuild trust in, in the profession because without trust, we don't have anything.